Hello, 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 and welcome to Kicking and Streaming, the show where streaming originals and traditional cinema enter the ring for the ultimate showdown. I'm Bo. And I'm Chris. Are streaming originals the TV movies of the 21st century? Is cinema really different from movies? Is Netflix the future? These questions and more on Kicking Kicking and and Streaming! Okay, uh... Sorry, what? Yeah, let's do that again. I don't think I heard you. And maybe if you can... Well, I thought we agreed we were going to come in strong on this one. Yeah, strong is right. But, you know, bring it in from your diaphragm. Diaphragm. Lower your register and you don't need to bellow. Listen, I don't know how you bellow, but where I come from, we really put our backs into it. Okay, all this and more on Kicking and Streaming. Chris? (sighs) Kicking and Streaming. Welcome back, everybody, to another stunning episode of Kicking and Streaming. I am your main host, Chris, and my sidekick host, Bo, is also here with me as well. Say hello to everyone, Bo. Chris, I don't, I don't like it when you start us out with, with stunning. That's you know, you don't want to be introduced that way. Set the expectations. Is it overselling it a bit? And then, and then let us exceed them. But maybe it's stunning as to how average it is. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what we do have today is. Is a guest, and and since he's here, I'm just going to go ahead and introduce him, so he doesn't have to wait awkwardly in the corner. <laughs> so our our guest today, uh, should we say very special guest? I'll let him decide in a moment. Okay, first, <laughs> his name is his name is John McCorder. Uh, you've seen him on the Great Courses. You've heard him on his podcast Lexicon Valley. You've read him in the Atlantic. You might know him as an author, perhaps as a professor of linguistics, or even as aficionado of Looney Tunes. John, welcome to the show. Happy to be here, Bo. Welcome, John. I forgot, Bo told me that you were a fan of Looney Tunes. I was raised on this stuff. It has informed probably 90% of my life philosophy, so. Me too. They are, to me, foundational lore. I mean, <laughs> there were about a thousand of them made. Last time I counted, I've seen about 870. And the ones that I haven't seen are the ones nobody needs to see. Yeah, I'm obsessed <laughs> with them. I, I take some Looney Tunes at least once a week, and my children are now, you know, getting obsessed too. Oh, that's terrific. I, I grew up watching them on Laserdisc, the now obsolete format that my dad had. Yeah, the Laserdiscs were wonderful for Looney mm. Tunes. Yeah, that was th- those were good sets. Never, almost not exceeded since on, on DVD and Blu-ray. Those were wonderful, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've bought a few Blu-ray collections just to try and pad out my library a tad but i can never find as robust a collection as what we had on those laser discs so i am turning around and looking right now at the brand new collection of 80 bugs bunny cartoons on blu-ray 40 of which are on home video for the first time and i've already looked through it twice that's how obsessed i am <laughs> with it's a bugs bunny centric collection <laughs> on my then. shelf right now yeah. yeah they only did the bugses and for some reason not all of them why not do all of them but they did 80 <laughs> And, you know, many of them I had not seen looking so beautiful ever. Oh, my word. Well, I will be hunting them down as soon as we stop recording. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's a, it's a wonderful thing the way they're able to, to pull things out like that now and restore them. It's that weird paradox of there's so much more now that many of these things are being forgotten. Yet, on the other hand, it's never been easier to see them. So if you know that you want them, if you know you like them, they're out there and they're better than ever. 
between home video and the internet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I'm old enough to remember when the only way to see these things was if somebody showed them on TV. If you lived in a big city and happened to get to a film festival, if you were a kid, you probably couldn't, or you had to go to an archive and you couldn't. And so you just read about these things that you felt like you would never see. That world is gone. I do not want to see Yeah, and that is kind of a neat segue into the the film that we're talking about. We're starting with our Criterion film this time because uh, uh, John, our guest, chose that one. And the film that was chosen is Make Way for Tomorrow, which has... Yeah, I mean, I think it's pulling out a bit. I see it talked about more, and certainly being in the Criterion Collection gives it a bit of a boost. But it's been sort of a forgotten film by a director who was also sort of a forgotten Hollywood director in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I guess before we really get into it, Chris, let's have the synopsis, yeah? Yes, yes. Let me just lead the synopsis with a deep thank you to John, because I had never seen this film before, and after it ended the first time, I, I knew instantly that it was in my top ten favorite movies I have ever seen in my life. I've since watched it two more times. Isn't it an amazing piece of work? It is. It's a, it's a monument to humanity, I think. And just to kind of get a really brief intro to the story without spoiling too much... Lucy and Barkley Cooper are an older couple living in the midst of the Great Depression. Barkley, or Bark, has been out of work a few years now, and the bank is about to foreclose on their home. So they call their children together to deliver the news, and it's decided that due to limited living space, Lucy and Bark are going to have to split up and live at separate children's houses while they figure things out. And what follow over the all-too-brief runtime are a series of mishaps and events both hilarious and heartbreaking as everyone struggles to make the arrangement work. And that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell. And I just want to say right up front, it's a fantastic character study and a shockingly human look at the very real problems that every single one of us face, even today. The, the movie is timeless, I think. Whether it's financial hardships, the stress of having your living space invaded by guests whom you love but can't accommodate the tragedy that is watching people you love get older, whether it's your parents or your children, having your children outgrow you or your parents grow to depend on you, no matter which side it's on, it's a painful experience. And I think Make Way for Tomorrow portrayed them as perfectly as any movie could ever hope to. I, I cannot stress enough how deeply this movie impacted me. So that's, that's Make Way for Tomorrow in a nutshell, along with a nutshell of my feelings. And the thing about it, if I may, is that um, we're talking about 1937. And, you know, it's at the point where you can be a major film fan, but you're talking about what's becoming 100 years of sound film. And it may be that you love movies, but the further you get before about 1960, the more remote you find it. And so it's the 1930s. It's under the Hayes Code. There are things that cannot be talked about and only alluded to. There's a speaking style among most of the actors that many of us today hear is kind of remote because the language has changed so much. And yet, even though it's 1937, films had only been talking for 10 years when this was made. It's in black and white. It's kind of short. It's an antique in many ways. It is as mean and sad and uncompromising as any dirty, sad little film made last week is. It is not sentimental. There's no old movie cheer about Make Way for Tomorrow. It's, I'm not going to say it's as if it was made yesterday, because it wasn't, but it can affect you as if it was made yesterday. That's what struck me when I actually first saw it. I agree completely. I think I, I was floored during, for me, especially the sequences with Lucy when she was living with her son George's family. And there's so many moments Agony. that are... 
It's agony. It is. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because there are lots of moments that are also hilarious. Like her kind of, there's a moment where the mother, where George's wife is, is teaching bridge and Lucy has been making a bit of a fuss up to this point about, she wants to make sandwiches for people. You know, it's, it's all the fussing that every grandmother has ever done. I think. <laughs> I could make the sandwiches, couldn't I? They're coming from the delicatessen. Well, it's cheaper to make them at home. I know, but we couldn't do so well. These are going to be fancy. How fancy can a sandwich be? You'll see. And the maid brings in her rocking chair, and then she sits and she starts creaking back and forth, and everyone just kind of stops creaking. and looks. Yeah. 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 And it's this awkward hilariousness where, I've, I've said this before in a few past episodes, but I absolutely love it when a movie allows a humorous moment to speak for itself without needing to dress it up or lampshade it. They don't need to call your attention to, hey, look how hilarious this, like... Let's have some people trip over each other trying to make this work. You know, it's just right. it's just raw. Which... And nobody says, say, will you stop rocking in that chair? Yeah. No one says anything. <laughs> and that yeah. makes it, which is the way they would have said it. Exactly. But no one says that, which makes it even worse. You know what they're thinking, and it just, they let it go by. Exactly. show up so i'm playing yeah the tension of the moment and really the whole movie is just tension on celluloid it's just constant constant tension which again i think makes for some fantastically comedic moments and some really just heartbreaking moments as well mm -hmm. which is why i think it's the most honest movie i've ever seen it's it's unfiltered you choke up like even during you know it kind of comes in three acts and the third act is when the older couple get to stroll around in New York and spend some time together after a long time. And the subtext is, and especially because it's 1937, they're over 70, there are a lot of medical advances that haven't been made. When people are over 70 in 1937, you're thinking of them as the first thing that happens, they're probably gone. That whole third act, you know they're never gonna see each other again. So as sweet as it is, you know that these people are not going to ever get to do this again, which means that it's as sad as the rest of the movie, even though they're happy spending time together. It's just heartbreaking, heartbreaking. Yes. Will you stop looking at your watch? We got five whole hours. We mustn't even think about the time. It's a strange film in that way because, you know, as you were giving the synopsis, I was thinking again, this film received a lot of praise because Leo McCary, the director, was known for mostly for comedies. So, I mean, he, you know, Duck Soup and Laurel and Hardy and all of these sort of things. So these are the these are the sort of films he's directing. And then he comes out with this. And he's really only able to do it, I think, because of the box office clout that he's had up until this point. You know, he's got producers coming begging him to put a star in the film, begging him to give the movie a happier ending, and he refuses to do any of these things. And, it, you know, he says he's kind of writing, you know, he lost his dad, I think, a year prior to making this film. And so it's kind of a tribute to his parents. And also, you know, to his sort of humanistic Irish Catholic ideals, although the only whisper of any religion that we get is the Bible quotation at the beginning about honoring. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You don't overlay it with that. That's true. No, they don't. Yeah. And But it's interesting because it, it was really praised by the critics, and yet 
they said that everywhere uh, i think there was a there were some people in france talking about when the film was going through cinemas again and they were begging them not to release the the plot line because they knew that if the plot line got out how sad and drear it sounds it would just wipe away all the work they did with all the critics praising it and that seems to have happened with this film a lot of critical acclaim not a lot of uh, popular appeal you know it, people just it's the depression you know people are already gloomy they didn't want to go out and watch this you know this sad film a film mm-hmm. so sad that someone as caustic as orson welles uh, talked about how he loved this movie, said it was the saddest movie he'd ever seen, and that he cried all the way through. Yeah, that, that movie when Bogdanovich yeah. is, yeah, is yeah. interviewing. A couple of years after I saw it, I was having dinner with Orson Welles, and I said, have you ever seen Make Way for Tomorrow? He said, oh my God, that's the saddest movie ever made. It would make a stone cry. <laughs> he loved it. And nobody went. And one of the posters for it actually has the old couple kind of off on the side, looking up at these two young people pawing at each other as if that's what the movie is about. You can see that they're trying to sell it as yeah. something sweaty and that's <laughs> not it, but they're so afraid of what, you know, quite inevitably happened because this is just not what a movie is supposed to be about in 1937. Yeah. Or even now, frankly. Yeah. 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 Marvel as existential dread seeps in in your early 30s watching this film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's interesting also, um, in that with the old couple, Victor Moore was mainly a stage guy. And he had been on stage in a serious way since the turn of the century. And he had been like, for anybody who even likes musical theater a little bit, Anything Goes, the first productions, 1934, he was Reverend Moonbeam. He had been one of the lead comics in that. That's what people knew Victor Moore as. And he did movies occasionally, but for him to be playing a lead role, and frankly, there's one old movie-ish thing in it that doesn't hold up. He's in a hair piece. You can tell that mm. that thing on his head is not real. He was a mostly bald man, even by the mid-30s. Oh, yeah. He is playing this very different kind of role where you could actually see him do his thing. It's a precious document of somebody who was very famous in his day and is now utterly forgotten because almost everything that he did was on stage. And then Beulah Bondi, he was only 48. And you yeah. would swear she was... 72 hmm. years old and yet yeah. she the aging make is much better than you expect for 1937 and she acts it it's astonishing to me how well she yeah. acts oldness I, I think what mo- most what most people will recognize Beulah Bondi for is uh, it's a wonderful life you know playing playing Jimmy Stewart's mother in which her brother is played by Thomas Mitchell who plays her son in this film so <laughs> Oh my goodness. God about that's true. That's incredible. It works perfectly. Yeah. And it's amazing. It's a testament to both of their acting capabilities because I remember finding out that both of them were younger than the parts they played, but they play them with such fragility and such vulnerability that mm-hmm. they don't they don't feel like characters in a movie. I was especially blown away uh the minute that Bark started talking. He has this sort of like like you could kind of almost feel his voice kind of catching in his chest a little bit, and it's it kind of trembles when he talks. I I broke my glasses this morning. Would you mind telling me if there's any bookkeepers wanted there? No. Why? Are you a bookkeeper? I am a bookkeeper. I don't think I've ever seen a film with a primary elderly character, let alone the main character in the film, 
have such a feeble sounding demeanor that the minute he opens his mouth, I, I sort of pity him. I feel sorry for him and I, I, I want to protect the guy. And so that makes the events of the film so heartbreaking. It just it, It's amazing to me. Neither of them play their characters as if they were lead characters. They both kind of play it as if they were sort of this ancillary sort of fading side character, which is part of the, the appeal of it. It's funny with Victor Moore, he always talked like that. That was one of his comedic things. You can hear him in old recordings. You can even up into the early 60s, he works on ties and that little baby voice. And that's funny, usually. In this, he makes it into a real person. And you can actually imagine her falling in love with that man. You know, he doesn't play it for laughs, but it's just, it's astonishing. And Thomas Mitchell, too. I always think of him as heavy and boozy. Yeah, And yet in this, he's the only one of the children who you can tell truly loves his parents. He somehow seems thinner. It's part, partly the way they dress him. But he had a range that I wouldn't expect him to have had. You see him in Gone with the Wind a couple of years later. It's hard to believe that that same guy is playing this tender, guilty son in this. Yeah, yeah. It's an astonishing performance. Yeah, yeah. And I want to say, I mean... Narratively, I guess we're kind of we're, we're probably going to be all over the board discussing this, but there were there were several moments that surprised me with how quickly they moved me to tears. But w- probably one of the biggest moments was George speaking with his mother. And I, I haven't seen any acting like it. It, it, it. He's approaching it like a doctor telling someone that they're about to die. Mother, there's something else I've got to tell you. Well, there's something I'd like to say to you first. Let me do it while I can, will you? You tell me later. Well, it's only this. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I haven't been too happy here. It's lonesome in this apartment with everybody gone all day. Uh, Would you mind terribly if I decided to leave you to go to the Idlewild home? It's a fine place. I'd meet friends my own age and... But, Mother, I didn't... Let me finish, dear. Once I thought that your father and I might get together again, but, well, I, I see that it'll never turn out that way. So I want to go to the home. Well, I'm glad that's over. I hated to tell you as much as you would have hated to tell me anything like that. And she throws herself on this grenade because up to this point, we know that he knows that he has to put her in a home. And there's even been this moment shortly before where Bark is speaking to his wonderful Jewish shopkeeper friend who is just this charming, adorable old man. And... His, his shopkeeper friend is reading a letter from Lucy to Bark because Bark doesn't have his glasses. And she talks about how she's seen the home that later we find out she'll be staying at. And it sounds like hell on earth. Harvey and Nellie know a woman who is in the home for the aged women here. They thought it would be nice for me to know her so that I would have someone my own age to talk to. So Nellie took me there to meet her. Oh, Bark, that home for the aged is so dreary and dismal. It was all I could do not to ask Mrs. Timmons how she stood it. 
Nellie kept saying how lovely the place was. I thought she said it to cheer Mrs. Timmons up, but she kept saying it after we left. It makes the moment sting that much more when we've already, we already know her impressions of this home. And then when she tells her son that she wants to stay there and to not tell Bark because he wouldn't have it. And we see this weight lift off of George and, and come on to her. And in my mind, it's the most meaningful and beautiful and heartbreaking sacrifice a person could make is what she did for her son in that moment. And you talk about the, um, the relationship between this and love per square foot, our modern movie. Mm. Of course, one of the themes is just the nature of, of space. Mm-hmm. And you think about something about 1937, which is that if you're in a home, one, there's no such thing as air conditioning. And two, as mundane as it seems, there's no such thing as TV. You know, forget the internet, but there's no TV. Mm. What would you do? And what they have is the radio. But the truth is that the radio was never as engrossing as TV. People didn't sit and listen to the radio all day. It wasn't as narcoticizing. So it isn't enough. And she's old. And so the radio is a little remote to her anyway. In the home, it would just be talking to people you don't know. And if they don't want to talk, you're just sitting there and it's hot and there's no TV. And that's also true of even this Riverside Drive apartment they have. What does she do all day? Well, they give her this knitting or whatever it is that she's going to give her something to do. Because let's face it, nowadays, that person would probably at least watch a lot of TV if they were too old to be online all the time. Mm -hmm. Back then, she has nothing to do. You have to entertain this person, and she deserves to be entertained. But imagine how much closer things felt back then, because she doesn't have anything to do. It's really, you really feel what the dilemma would have been. Yeah. Yeah. And she's coming from her, you know, her rural her rural home where she's presumably used to being able to, you know, take walks and exist in this, in these open spaces to, you know, the, the concrete jungle of, of New York where, which isn't her element and, you know, a home there stifling again in other ways. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's very claustrophobic. She's stuck. Yeah. It's funny you say the Jewish guy, they can't say that, you know, they can only imply (laughs) <laughs> they don't specify him as Jewish, I don't think. But he is the, this 30s Jewish character, actor. He was in The Great Dictator, um, where it was less coded. But he's that guy in the shop in, in The Great Dictator. who, And so I guess he oh, does wow. this Jewish thing. Yeah, that's that same oh. guy. His name, he has an M in his name. I'm blanking on what his name oh, was. Uh, Moscovich. Yeah, Sorry. yes. Yeah. Is it Maurice? Yes. Moscovich, yeah. yeah. He, he worked. And it was always a, as that person. And in this, yeah, he's codedly this this Jewish man, right? That's right. Yeah, and I think he works really well in this because of the the subtlety and the nuance that that Leo McCary brings to his direction. Because there's not anything really ostentatious in any of the images that are created or in his style. It's all very subtle plays with his close-ups, with his reverse shots that never really calls any attention to itself and just really slips you, eases you into the story, I think, in a way that uh, few directors manage to do. Yeah. And maybe this is just a a moment to take a a side note on the, and I'm sure both of you saw this, um, it's mentioned in in lots of interviews, and it was something for which Leo McCary was was famous, and that's that he used a lot of improvisation, mm. and it, that's the that's kind of the way that that he worked. And so, famously, what he would do is sometimes changing. I think some some were estimating up to like seventy percent of the actual script was changed by the time it was released in in the movie. 
And what he would do is he would come that day and he would sort of set the mood with his piano playing and he would then have the actors just, just kind of improvise together. And, and sometimes he would step off, you know, in the middle of shooting, go back to his piano again and then come back with some more ideas. You know, let's change this. Let's create this. Let's do this. And, you know, allowing the actors to kind of evolve that way. And, and famously with Cary Grant, with whom he made a, a few movies. But when he made the first movie with Cary Grant, The Awful Truth, which comes out this same year mm. and wins the Oscar. And in that film, Cary Grant was going to quit because he was so thrown off by this style of, you know, not having a script of showing up and having to improvise. And I think it's amazing because with Cary Grant, again, working with comedy again, I don't think, I mean, just a couple of years after this, you get Cary Grant in what I think is perhaps his best film, uh, His Girl Friday with Howard Hawks in which he's doing enormous amounts of improvisation. And that's something that I think maybe he first becomes comfortable with here, you know, three years earlier mm. with, with McCary. And it's strange to think about all this comic improvisation as it relates to a film like Make Way for Tomorrow. And yet we know that scenes like we're talking about where, I mean, I'm sure that the whole scene wasn't improvised because it's, it, you know, it's set up. But the way in which Thomas Mitchell and Beulah Bondi interact in that, scene that we were talking about where she's realizing that she's going to have to go to this home. You know, that isn't something that comes from the novel that this is based on. And so it's things that they're coming up with. And I don't know if that at what stage they're coming up with it. But I really think it's still very much the style of acting that, um, you know, people of the 30s were accustomed to. But it has certainly a, a naturalism to it. Yeah. And actually, that scene between them, I find much more naturalistic than, for example, anything with Faye Bainter as his wife. Faye Bainter is trained in that classic transatlantic accent that people were taught to use in those parts. And she can't help it. That's what she was expected to do. But <laughs> she does a very good job with the role. But you have to listen through that pseudo-British enunciation as much as you feel her. Whereas yeah. Thomas Mitchell doesn't have any of that. And Beulah Bondi talks you know, pretty much like a, a normal person and so you really do find that you can relate to them as people you know you can imagine those people did have that interaction in that riverside drive apartment yeah uh -huh. it's funny with the improv you're right i have never read not that i've read deeply but i've never heard that Cary grant minded doing the improvisation on his girl friday you read about it's just a party and everybody thought howard hawks was a genius for allowing it Whereas with The Awful Truth, he didn't like it. It's because he learned. You're right. And it's interesting <laughs> that The Awful Truth also holds up. The Awful Truth is still genuinely belly laugh funny after all, all this time. And part of that is that they seem like they're doing things in real time. There's actual spontaneity. Yeah. yeah, that's a McCary thing in general. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a big part of what makes all these interactions feel so real. And it's I have a difficult time watching it, at least from a newcomer outsider perspective, of, of being able to tell which parts of the script may have been changed over time or, or made up on the spot or, or written far ahead of time. But there's all of these of these beautiful little real moments. And I think in particular, a part that I would not be surprised to find out was was unscripted was a lot of that final act with Bark and Lucy on their on their last date together, where, as you mentioned, John, that's it's, it's the reality of the lack of, of proper medicine back then, of, of the idea that, you know, after your 70s, it's pretty much fair game. You're, you know, dead man walking after your 70. Uh, 
I didn't even think about that, but mostly they sell the weight of the situation so well that, for example, um, something that kind of sets the stage, I think, for this final interaction they have is when Lucy is speaking with her granddaughter. Why don't you face facts, Grandma? Oh, Rhoda. When you're 17 and the world's beautiful, facing facts is just as slick fun as dancing or going to parties. But when you're 70, well, you don't care about dancing and you don't think about parties anymore. And about the only fun you have left is pretending that there ain't any facts to face. So would you mind if I just kind of went on pretending? Yeah. And notice she says, but when you're 70, whereas today we might say 80, but she is 70, you know, it's over at 70. If you've got high blood pressure, probably there's nothing they can do. There's no penicillin. So yeah, 70. Yeah, that, that's one of the saddest scenes and utterly believable. And also it means that Rhoda, Barbara Reed is her yep. name? Yeah, she, um, she's heartless. It's such such a loveless movie. What a terrible thing to say to your grandmother. I mean, if anything, it's honest. It's not as sentimental as that discussion would have been portrayed in just about any other movie at the time. But it's a really mean, cold little film. There are a lot of people who really don't give a damn about each other. <laughs> and it's too bad. The other children, for example, you know, they may love yeah. their parents on an abstract level, but really, you know, they just want them to go away. Thomas oh. Mitchell is the exception. And we all know that there are lives like that. Mm-hmm. And we don't think of them as having been in 1937, but wow. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a slice of universal human life. I want to ask you two something, though. Yeah. Last 10 minutes, and Lucy and Bart are out on the dance floor, and there's that, that waltz playing. And it was, a, it was a pop tune of the day. Should they have sung to each other? Because notice how in Love Per Square Foot, there are these non-diegetic kind of musical numbers that pop up out of nowhere, which really worked for me. Mm. I really, yeah. I think that I, I like that. But then it made me think, why didn't they sing Let Me Call You Sweetheart to each other? Would that have worked? It, to me, I would have loved seeing it, even if it didn't technically make any sense. I was waiting in a way for them to sing to each other. And instead, <laughs> the movie sings to them. Just wondering how you two feel about that. Yeah. Well, the, the thing that strikes me is I wonder, it, you know, it's one of those things that... After I feel like I want that in a way, just because I I want them to extend their their time together. It's it's such an infuriating movie in a way, as as you know, sad and and sweet as it is, because you just keep thinking it's a it's a sort of film that makes you want to, in a in a strange way, like a horror film, like in the way that you want to tell them not to go upstairs. <laughs> you just want to go in there and be like, look, just just tweak a couple of things here and just stay, you know, why are this is, why is this happening? And yeah. so I want them to stay together. But at the time, uh, I don't know. I can't, I can't say it really occurred to me. I don't know if I would have, you know, watching it through the first time, if I would have thought it, whether Corny, it would have pushed it. Yeah, yeah. It may have yeah. pushed it that, that way. I don't know. Yeah. I One just thing... wanted there to be some magic there, mm. even though it yeah. wasn't a musical. And um, <laughs> so I just wondered if I was insane. 
One thing I did appreciate, though, about that, um, there was a part of me that wanted them to kind of vocalize that a bit. But you do get that moment right after where they're they're tipsy, they're drunk, they're in the back of that cab or the uh, the car singing that song to each other quietly with no music to accompany them. Just let let me me call you, sweetheart. I'm in love with you. Let me hear you whisper that you love me too. Keep the love light glowing in your eyes so blue. Let me call you sweetheart. I'm in love with you. And they're sort of finishing it for each other and looking into each other's eyes and almost kind of smiling and whispering as they sing it to each other. And there was something about that car ride as they're singing that song, which I don't, mm-hmm. it's interesting. I don't know if, if this scene would have worked in kind of a more traditional musical format, the way that love for square foot does, but the way that they're singing to each other almost feels kind of like, you know, in movies and in reality where an older loved one is dying and the other person is singing to them as they pass, um, mm-hmm. almost kind of like, a you know, a last lullaby as they're, as they're sort of fading into the dark. And you, you said this, John, and I completely agree that it, this does feel like they're both going to die. Like it, it feels like this is their last day on earth together. And mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, based on the connection they feel for each other without each other, they essentially are dead inside, you know, and it's they're not going to last. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think in, and then of course, I think in the novel, the final shot. Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say that I think in the novel it actually ends with them at the grave of of Bark as he's 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 already passed and they're now and then I think that's where they tell her that she's going to have to go to a home, which is Ooh. yeah, I know. <laughs> By the way, mom, this is as good a time as any yeah. to tell you. Um... <laughs> Oh, no, I don't think I would want to see that movie. (laughs) Yeah, I like the ambiguity of what little there is of this film's ending. Because, John, you were going to say something about that last shot. I'd love to get into that. Oh, the last shot of Beulah Bondi as the train goes. And just the final facial expression that she has, kind of of uncertainty and then just kind of moving along. And apparently, you know, McCary insisted on that being exactly the way it was. And Beulah Bondi is such a good actress mm-hmm. in doing that. And this is at a time when a lot of the acting in movies of that time was a kind of broad. And yet there you go. Like, I'm going to say something sacrilegious. I don't think Jane Darwell in Grapes of Wrath, I don't think she could have pulled off the way that ended as well as Beulah Bondi. And Beulah Bondi was thought of for Ma Jode, actually. Jane Darwell had her moment. There's always a little bit of vaudeville about her to me. Whereas with Beulah Bondi, I mean, she really, the face, the body language, it's a very modern moment. And it's exactly what she would have been feeling. And there's nothing more to say. There's nothing more that needs to be said than that. And that, of course, helped to deep six this movie because nobody wanted that ending. But it's (laughs) deeply touching. Lump in the throat for me. I've seen it three times. Yeah. Yeah, that 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 final moment. Yeah, I I completely agree on on Beulah Bondi's acting in that final sequence because I think it was Bogdanovich's interview that I was watching where he talks about it as well. Where it it doesn't a lot of movies kind of end on that hopeful note, and the movie even kind of dangles that carrot in front of you for a few seconds where he says, "Listen, as soon as I get there, I'm going to find work and we're going to get it together." And 
And of course, there have been multiple moments throughout where they say everything will work out. But what if it doesn't work out? You know, things don't really work out. But they could have just left it at that of just like things will be okay and then cut. But they have that lingering shot of her expressing internally that deep down knowledge that it's not going to be okay. Which is why I love, oh gosh, I love that last, that moment where she talks to him. And in case I don't see you, well, for a little while, I just want to tell you, it's been lovely. Every bit of it. The whole 50 years. I'd sooner been your wife, Barb, than anyone else on earth. This, This expression of pure love between them, and it's you really do feel like she's saying it as they are dying, that I have no regrets. She's saying goodbye. Yeah. Yeah, she is yeah. saying goodbye. She she knows. Yeah. She's doing, I think, it's the same thing that she was doing with Thomas Mitchell earlier, where she sees the note, she realizes what needs to happen, and she's not breaking the illusion because she understands the importance of these little lies and illusions in our lives that we set up in the same way that she knows that, you know, that her 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 favorite son, frankly, can't go through with it if he's going to have to tell her, you know, exactly what's happening. He needs to hold on to this. And even though they both know exactly what's happening, that story that she's telling allows this to persist. And in the same way that, you know, that Victor Moore's character, he knows that he isn't going to be able to get a job and to make these things work. And, and she knows, you know, that that's what he's he's trying to play off. And they understand what's happening. But she's the one who's got that you know the the wisdom enough to to hold that corner there's no social security yeah i mean that's that's the theme of this this is before the safety net that certain people seem to think we shouldn't have yeah it's either charity or nothing and they don't have any charity to use yeah and so they're just stuck this couple can't live together because there's no social security yeah (sighs) it's very very gripping it's yeah. heartbreaking. And the social security message is brought about, you know, without, you know, without ever mentioning it, even though that was very it much in the zeitgeist of the, of, yeah. the, of those, you know, of those few years. It was the big debate happening. The other thing that I, what struck me so much watching it this time in preparation for the film is this, the other message that I think really resonates. And that is that you have to try to be great if you want to be decent. Like we're all going to fall short of our ideas, of our moral ambitions, of our finer feelings. And if you if your reach is for mere decency, then it is mere decency that you might never attain. But you know, if we answer to the call for moral greatness, that call that we feel, then appetites and sensitivities and things that we try to refine, and I, I think it's then that maybe decency is what you land on as you're falling short. Yeah. Yeah. And on that, isn't it? great about that movie that there are a lot of ambiguities nobody is a villain and so there are people who are rather unsavory but especially the ones who we're supposed to care about Faye Bainter they're having some hard times during the depression and they have an expensive place that they're living so she has to take in people and teach them bridge and they have to get those tables and you know who are these people and they're in there and she has to teach them bridge she's not having a great time and then all of a sudden she has to deal with her mother-in-law and Faye Bainter is not a rustic person. And so she's partly thinking these country people. She used to see them maybe once every two years. And now this woman is living there. And so you can't see her as a villainess in any way. Yeah. And then Beulah Bondi is also a little annoying. You know, technically, you can understand how that person would kind of yeah. get on your nerves after a while without meaning to. 
everybody who you care about, once you get into about circle three, people get to be somewhat one dimensional, like the, the other, well, two of the other kids. Yeah. But who we care about are, are full characters in full. Victor Moore could have managed money better. It's not absolutely inevitable. He could have said something before they were absolutely in the hole. And she accepts that. This is how real people are. And so it's not a broad strokes film either. And it's just so welcome to see that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, to me, that's the key of the whole film, is that the inconveniences that are being caused by the the parents are real inconveniences that you can latch onto. You know, it's not painted in such a way where we go like, oh, these these horrible, horrible kids, like not, you know, it's as much as we may come to that summation as we're seeing everything that's happening and what what they're forced to do, you still, mm-hmm. in the moment, as each of these things come up, we all know that we would be irked by a lot of these things. And then one of the things that I think is darkly beautiful about the New York sequence at the end when they get to go on their date and you see them running into all these people who are treating them with kindness and and so on is that, you know, the people that treat them best are the ones who know them the least. And yet that's sort of the that sort of happens in our own lives, I think. You know, we find it's it's easy to, you know, barring exchanges on the internet, it's easy to be nice to strangers. But sometimes it's difficult to be nice to the people that are around you and, you know, who are constantly you know, you've you've seen all their flaws and they know how to press your buttons and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, yeah. Speaking of people who they run into, I'm going to throw in this utter trivia because the linguist <laughs> in me can't help it. But the Del Henderson character, um, talk about Laurel and Hardy. He that automobile, listen to me, that car salesman is actually somebody who pops up in Charlie Chase films and Laurel and Hardy as various people. And now here he is. He's this Al Roach person. But it's the way they say automobile, because that word originally was pronounced automobile. We say automobile. Del Henderson says automobile. Uh, my name's Ed Wellen. Of course, you don't know me from Adam's father. But you can judge something of my character when I tell you I'm permitted to represent this automobile. It's a precious example of the change in that word over time. Huh. And it's funny, the first time I saw it, I thought, somebody's going to say automobile because it's old. And I thought, I wonder if he's going to say automobile or is maybe he going to have it in the middle because I had never heard anybody do it in the middle and damned if he doesn't do it. I'm going <laughs> to sell you an automobile. And I thought, precious linguistic history. I just have to throw that yeah. throw that in. And then later it becomes automobile. So That's awesome. Isn't that fun? <laughs> that is great. I love stuff That's like this. One of my favorite things about that movie. Yeah, that's so cool. I like picking up on those, especially from the the very, very early talkies. The other example, not to wander too far off, that's my favorite is um, the suspects in The Thin Man. When they catch a suspect. That's right. (laughs) Instead of the suspects. Yeah. It's gorgeous. One Uh, more. In one movie, um, and now I can't remember the movie, it's in something like Employee's Entrance, Warren William says, don't be such a big shot, instead of don't be such a big shot. And I think that's interesting. (laughs) I wish I could remember which movie it is. Those are fun. Yeah. Yeah. I I love that. And I like, there there is this, this fun folksy magic to a lot of it. It's so interesting because it really does feel like it could have been made yesterday, but there's so much about it that feels quaintly period specific. 
that you get to be transported while also holding up a mirror to your own life as you're watching it. You can yeah. smell 1937, but it's also today. Exactly. Yeah. I wonder if that's helpful, too, because I wonder if it, it would be, you know, in the way that it, it was too much for people in the 30s, I wonder if it would be too much if it was, you know, deftly made with all of the little examples and nuances that we would recognize here in 2020. You know, I wonder mm. if we need a little bit of that distance, that, you know, folksy distance to pull us out of the story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. There's some films that can be, for some audiences, too difficult to watch, even for audiences that would benefit the most from seeing it. It kind of reminded me a bit of, there was a film at Sundance that Bo and I actually saw earlier this year called The Father with Anthony Hopkins. Have you had the, the pleasure of seeing that yet, John? I don't know if it's come out publicly. No, yet. I don't think it's out. I mean, also right. in 2020, I've seen so few new movies for the obvious reasons. Right, right. Uh, yeah. That's true. But what yeah. was this one like? It was uh, the, the Father. I don't want to take too much focus away from our two films, but essentially it's Anthony Hopkins is this grand, this this really old father who is slowly succumbing to dementia over the course of the film. And his daughter is played by, oh gosh, help me out, Bo. Um, A couple people, but <laughs> <laughs> Olivia Coleman. Olivia Coleman. Huh. Olivia Coleman. Is she yeah she's amazing she plays his there there is some switching back and forth because essentially the film is told from the perspective of this man as he is succumbing to dementia and so you get this very real unsettling firsthand perspective of a man who is losing his mind as he as he goes on and it's it's such a heartbreaking tragic movie and it, I, I it, this movie did make me think about it a little bit as I was watching it because of the way that it is able to to get a chuckle out of you before making you cry just two seconds later and that's another one that it doesn't I mean obviously it doesn't benefit from that that degree of separation but I think it it, it still hit me even with the discomfort of of it being even more present and even more real but hmm. um definitely, definitely. yeah if whenever it, whenever it's available to stream or watch, I highly recommend it to John and anybody listening. <laughs> Olivia Coleman is, you know, she can do no wrong. Yeah, she's great. And then, of course, Hopkins. So, yeah, definitely. I'll take a look. Yeah. I, all right. Well, I suppose as we're maybe closing up on this one, we'll do our, at the end of each movie we review, John, we like to have a moment where we reflect on who this film might be for, who's going to enjoy this film or who we would, who we would recommend it to. And obviously it sounds like we're, you know, this is a thumbs up from all three of us. And one of those that I think it's probably going to fall into the camp of a movie that sounds difficult, doesn't sound fun, doesn't seem like one that you would want to recommend to people. And yet one that I would encourage just about anybody to go and see. Yeah. Yeah. I would say on this one, if you're somebody who thinks... And it's interesting, it's gotten to the point that people often don't like to admit it. But if you're somebody who thinks you don't like movies made before your time or say a generation before your time, that's fine. You know, they're, they're, it's at the point where there are too many movies to see unless you're a buff. We, we can't all do everything. So, all right, let's see your modern movies. But if you want to have seen, say, 10 old movies and you've already done Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz and maybe pretended to like Citizen Kane because, you know, some people watch it and only pretend to like it, I mean, as opposed to thinking <laughs> it's the best thing in the world. I adore it. But after yeah. you finish with that, this is one to watch where you will be in 1937 and you will not be nauseated. You will not find it quaint. You won't feel like they held back. I would sit nine out of 10 people I know through this, whether or not they're fans of oldie things. Yeah. Yeah. That's what this would be. 
for me. I would say I would agree completely. One of my closest friends actually is, I wouldn't say he's averse to old films, but he does tend to, when I, when I recommend an older film, he's like, ah, is it really good? You know? <laughs> <laughs> but like me, he's yeah. also someone who, who loves to watch movies that make him sad. I love watching movies that make me feel, and it's funny. I would have hated this kind of thing that I love nowadays. I would have hated it 10 years ago, but something about, I don't know. I'm, I'm still youngish by today's standards, but in my early thirties, I, I'm at the point now where I, uh, <laughs> I don't know if you'd say I'm dead inside or something, but I absolutely love films that make me feel any emotion, whether it's negative or positive. <laughs> you know, you see enough Marvel movies and you think, am I incapable of feeling anything ever again? And then you see something that just makes you miserable, makes you cry, makes you, makes you scared. And so that's my friend also. He's like me. So it, it'll totally counterbalance itself. He'll ask if he should see this when it's so old. And I'll say, well, hey, if you want to be, miserable but in a very real way for an hour and a half you will so you're basically saying it's it's like the the emotional purge of like a greek tragedy (laughs) where you go and you and you weep and then and then maybe you feel better is that what you're exactly well it's it's it is very it is very cathartic but not in the way that it's 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 not like you cry and you get this thing off your chest. It's like you cry and now you have this thing on your chest. But it's something that probably should have yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's something that probably should have been on your chest. You know, it it you're sad about things you might not have even ever thought about, and it I think it it speaks to your experience and to how you treat people moving forward. I think it's a it's a transformative movie. Yeah, I've been an old movie fan since I was fifteen, and you're making me think. I wouldn't have gotten this until I was in my late 30s. I'm 55. I would have found it gloomy and kind of, it wouldn't have hit me as hard mm. because as you get a little older, you've dealt with your parents aging and you then, you know, either taking them in or not taking them in and feeling terrible about mm-hmm. it. And you start to get a sense of what it would be like to be involved with somebody for 50 years and how wonderful that might be. If your body starts changing a little bit, you, you become more sympathetic to people who are old and what it must feel like mm-hmm. yeah chris you're better than me i think <laughs> if i were 31 i would not love the movie i hadn't <laughs> seen it then because nobody was talking about it you know 25 years ago right, but yeah right. it, it helps to be middle-aged for me at least uh-huh yeah yeah i think it's yeah to either have felt it or to for whatever weird masochistic reason to want to feel that kind of sadness whether it's for the perspective or just because you like feeling sad i don't know (laughs) but i get that yeah yeah Yeah. in any case you're right though it's i mean it manages not to be didactic really at all and yet it's one of the only sad movies that i can think of that's also a, a a humbling movie like by the time you're done with it you sort of have the idea of like of things that you maybe need to to take care of that you yeah. need to change. <laughs> Whereas most sad movies, I think, you know, you just, uh, you, you know, you feel bad for the characters or you get a sense of relief about the story being over. Yeah. Yeah. That movie leaves you thinking, what can I do mm. as if there isn't social security already? You're thinking to yourself, <laughs> how can I fix it for those people? That is, yeah. or other people, that is very true. How can I make yeah. the world better? Mm-hmm. Yep. Very much. Exactly. And it's that old. Yeah. 83 years old. Man, that's wild. And yeah, that, that movie was a gift. So thank you again, John, for, for suggesting it because my life is richer for having seen it. On Criterion. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And it looks good too. It does. Very, very well restored. Yeah, I was very surprised to find out how old it was. That was... Yeah, 1937. 
Kevin doesn't usually look that good. Yeah. Yeah. Felt like it could have been 20 years fresher than that. Yeah. Well, speaking of of films that are fresher, we have a fairly fresh film. <laughs> How's, how are my segue skills? <laughs> we did also watch Love Per Square Foot. Yeah. Picking that film out as the response, uh, it, it almost felt like, weirdly enough, a match made in heaven or a match made in hell. I don't know what you would, uh, depending on, on how you look at it. But it was fun to look at uh, this completely tonally, stylistically, as as... Yeah as different as it could possibly be, but also dealing with family tension, living in close quarters, the idea of, of the, you know, the class divide poverty. And I, the main reason I got into it was just thinking, you know, people have to separate to live somewhere. These people have to come together to live somewhere. So I thought that was kind of a fun little yeah. yes, uh, reflection. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was Chris's Netflix pick. So let me, I'll, give our listeners the the rundown here. So yeah, it's Love Per Square Foot. Uh, It's a 2018 Hindi film, uh, what we commonly call a Bollywood movie, playing off of the Mumbai industry's former name of Bombay. And this Bollywood film draws from the Hollywood rom-com classic formula, uh, by which I mean it uses a mix of broad comedy and wit to follow the sort of premarital angst of beautiful, charming people as they fall in and out of love on the road to all's well that ends well. Uh, so in this particular case, we first meet Sanjay, and he's an IT worker cog in a large corporate machine. Uh, he lives in the concrete jungle, jungle of Mumbai, and he doesn't have enough of the needful to purchase his own pad, so he's cooped up with his parents in a one-bathroom flat, dreaming of a place to call his own. He's also caught up in a love triangle with his boss, Rashi, She's sort of stringing him along in a non-committal affair while her boyfriend is off traveling. And in the meantime, we meet Karina, also a worker at this mega company and also dreaming of a house to call her own, or at least to share with her fiancé, who for his part seems content to remain under the comfortable umbrella of his wealthy family estate. And then paths converge when both Sanjay and Karina find a government lending scheme providing homes to young and crucially married couples. And around this time, they also find each other, and the pieces slowly start to take shape along a fairly archetype, fairly normal lines, <laughs> put it that way. <laughs> and like we said, stylistically, tonally, a million years from from what we're from what we were watching. I must admit, for the more. first five minutes, I was thinking, what the in terms of make way for tomorrow and i love the movie to pieces i thought it was just delightful but it took me about 10 minutes to understand why this was a match with but it was it very much was it was a very clever pairing but it took me a while that's, yeah that's <laughs> the that's the name of this podcast getting together those marrying those those odd films together. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes we really have to explain ourselves. So actually, you know, it's, we, it's always discussed as a Hindi film, but this is, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to do too much linguistic geeking out, but that movie, like many Bollywood movies, is a beautiful portrait of what it's like to talk among many urban Indians because it's only about half in Hindi. These are people who switch between Hindi and English effortlessly all the time, the way many of us are maybe familiar with people switching between Spanish and English. And they're not thinking about it. I mean, there's a thing called Hinglish that people make jokes about as if it's some one thing, but really they just switch all the 
time. And one of the funnest things is that at one point in one of the um, conflicts between Sanjay and Karina, the reason they switch is when they're saying something dramatic. So they're having an argument of, and it's in Hindi. And so mm -hmm. we have, we who are not Indian have no idea what they're saying. But then whenever she says something like, you never loved me or something like that, she switches to English and that's part of how you say something dramatically. Stop. Don't say it. I got carried away. And they just have these two languages that knit intimately. If you listen to a lot of the Hindi, you can hear there are a lot of English words in it. Sometimes they're speaking English and you miss a patch because they've stuck in some Hindi. That's their language. I had never seen a movie showing that so richly because I'm not a I'm not deeply familiar with Bollywood. But yeah, it's you, you, it said yeah. that it's in Hindi, even if it weren't subtitled you would get the gist of yeah. this movie because so much of it is English, which yeah. actually helps make it more approachable for us. I think so. And I, I was fascinated by that. Yeah. By the, the whole English idea. And I was, you know, I was sitting there trying to figure out as well, because you, you wonder they're, they're sprinkling it in. And I kept trying to think, you know, is it when it's more dramatic, like just when are they choosing one language over the other? And, and trying to to parse that out. Another thing I thought was really interesting. I I read that, and this was in in two thousand four, so a bit out outdated. But uh, a a linguist at the University of Wales, let's see, David Crystal, um, he was projecting that there's about three hundred fifty million English speakers, and that it may soon outnumber the number of native English speakers. Wow. Yeah, he Crystal. Is... I know David Crystal. Yeah, his observation is crucial that if a Martian came down and just looked at where English is spoken everywhere on Earth, default English would be Indian English. You know, they, there are more of them than there are of us. Yeah, they have, yeah. and certainly of people in England where they're like seven people. It's like, yeah, it's at the point where <laughs> that way of speaking English is numerous, far beyond what we're doing here for example. Yeah, wow. I found it interesting to watch a whole movie where people were speaking what you can think of as real English. What it, <laughs> what it, yeah. yeah, that's great. And I wondered too, whether it, whether how much it informs that sort of thing, and this may be a bit of a stretch, but how much it informs the filmmaking style, because it does seem to be such a marriage between, you know, a Western and I guess to be very broad about it and an Eastern style of, you know, and what I find is is fascinating about it is because, you know, I've seen a lot of the like the Indian classics, you know, by Rai, something you know, like the Apu trilogy or different things like this. But I don't you don't see a lot of these, you know, these pop culture foreign films making a big splash. But this is I mean, this is a big budget film and it's full of style. And, you know, I, I was looking at. I was researching, looking for any interviews. I couldn't even find any interviews with the director because it's, it's such like a pop movie that it's all with the cast, just being beautiful and playing little games like you would get, you know, on the equivalent of like Jimmy Fallon or something in India. And they're, mm -hmm. you know, they're just playing little like dating games together and and everybody's, just, they're not even asking him about the movie. They're just asking him about like their love lives and what they think about dating and all these kind of things, <laughs> you know. So it's, it's just, a, it's a big like, you know, popcorn romance film. And... Yeah. There is, you know, there's there's the English that makes it approachable. There's, you know, the universality of relationships anywhere. 
And, and I think it does, you know, it, it pushes past all of the sort of, I don't know what you'd say, inside India baseball that you kind of have to navigate to <laughs> to figure out what's going on. Um, yeah, yeah. It's funny how they're all so beautiful and they're really good actors. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm, I'm going to openly admit this because we don't know them and because the language is different. It's kind of hard to make the names register in your head. And so I've been just kind of cursing. Vicky Koshel and Anjara Dar. Those are the leads. So the guy is Vicky Koshel. What a fine actor. Yeah. You know, to not have that that lead come off as a dick. You know, think of an American actor who could pull that. It's kind of maybe Ryan Gosling or Joseph Gordon-Levitt. That's a tricky act to pull off. And then Anjara Dar, who I've looked her up on Wikipedia, she doesn't hasn't done that much. She is so, this sounds condescending, so charming and so supple. She's a really good actress in playing this, especially given that the part, especially if you take away the exotic part and you really think about it, some of it's a little implausible and yet she actually does play it. She's Emma Stone. She is somebody who is as talented and charming as Emma Stone there. I hope she has a real career. I mean, I I don't know if I'll be seeing it, but the two of them (laughs) were just so deft at making all of that work. And they looked good doing it in the costumes. It was such a wonderful confection. You know, a yeah. little of it was like the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. There's a little bit of that. Yes. Yeah. In that candy cane, beautiful colors. and That vibrancy you know, that. and enthusiasm that's always on display. It's And that nobody sweats. And even if it's in India. Yeah, it, that candy cane feeling. It yeah. Was, yeah. It was delightful. Yeah. Yeah. And they're sort of, they do fall neatly into that well, fairly neatly, I guess, into that category of what I call charisma performers, where I feel like they're they're easy to sort of dismiss. Like you don't think you don't watch them and you don't you know, most people don't come away from that thinking like, wow, what what great performances, you know, like what uh, you know, it's, it doesn't have the sort of Oscar quality that we you know, you have to be weeping and doing all these things to. Yeah. But it reminds me a little bit of actually in an interview that I'm sure probably all watched. It was a Criterion interview with Peter Bogdanovich, the director about uh, Make Way for Tomorrow, but he was talking about being able to pull off comedy. Actors who can do comedy can do anything because he says comedy is harder. And this film, you know, has dramatic moments in the way that rom-coms do, you know, uh, relational spats and so on. But a lot of, you know, big broad comedy and witty parts. And to be able to pull those sort of things off in a way that carries a a long film, uh, yeah, Yeah. I think speaks to... You have to be sort of a veteran performer to pull that off. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a thing about it also. It's too long, although I'm not sure what I would cut. Yeah. Because the most obvious thing you would cut is the kind of extraneous musical numbers where it's supposed to be in real life. And then all of a sudden they're singing, except <laughs> obviously lip syncing. Yes. And obviously. we get the translations <laughs> of these stupid lyrics. And I must admit, I was convinced by that, although I'm going to admit my ignorance here. I'm not a Bollywood guy, so I don't know what is normal to them. And I was thinking, is this what happens in any rom-com in in Bollywood, or is this something unique to this? I'm guessing it's the former, and the Indian audiences are used to that. And I thought, I get it. I think I found it rather sophisticated that it's me wanting them to sing on the dance floor and make way for tomorrow. I liked that abstract musical 
business. I, yeah. I would have minded seven of those, but then the movie would be 10 hours long. Well, <laughs> yeah. And it reminds me, uh, speaking of other stretches, of like something you'd get in like a Howard Hawks film where they weren't musicals, but they would take the time to just one of the characters would be a singer for some reason. And then they would just sing and everyone would kind of sing and you just get a sort of a musical interlude. And, you know, it's not enough to be a musical in the fact that there's not going to be, you know, a dozen songs, but there might be three. And mm. that's kind of what they're doing here. It's just sort of a, this is a piece of entertainment. So let's throw in more entertainment. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I do think, I, yeah, my, like you guys, my, my familiarity with, with Bollywood is is dubious at best. It's not, I, I don't have, I haven't seen a lot of it. But I was thinking about the filmmaker Tarsim Singh, who made one of my personal favorite films, The Fall. And he's also, before that, he made The Cell with Jennifer Lopez, which was a very, very different kind of movie. And somewhat recently, he made Mirror, Mirror with Julia Roberts, that, that sort of take on Snow White. That film, I think, has some Bollywood sensibilities to it, especially something I've noticed, uh, Slumdog Millionaire did this, which wasn't made by, you know, that was made by uh, Danny Boyle. Danny Boyle, yeah. But since it took place in in India, I think he I think he borrowed some Bollywood sensibilities. There's this there's this trend I've seen with the ones that I've watched where the end credits are sort of a big group music video where you have mm. yeah, they're all yeah. dancing and just having fun and and it's it's so jolly and nonsensical to me. And so th- this movie was the highest concentrated dosage I've gotten of it so far where even in the in the opening credits, you've got you know people living in the city, and you've got the titles on screen, and then suddenly you see these three musicians kind of singing to the camera and stuff, and it's like it's a music video now for half a second, and uh, yeah, yeah. I, it must be something that is that it, I mean I I say it must be something presumptuous me. We're probably going to have our our massive base of Indian listeners are like these idiots, <laughs> uh, <laughs> have no idea what they're talking about, but yeah, it is something that once you once you kind of acclimate to it it does become very charming and, yeah. and and although you know you know where they lost me as in i just thought this is not my culture i don't know where this is supposed to land i'm just going to wait for it to end is that chicken dance That was very strange. Like here we had that funky chicken that black people did for 10 minutes in the 70s. Apparently, (laughs) is that something that they're just doing now? Do they always do the chicken dance? That makes no sense. You've got these super stylish DJs at this big exotic wedding. Who's ready for the chicken dance? I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) they all do it. (laughs) Come again? Yeah. Very exotic. Yeah. (laughs) I found yeah, I found that strange as well. Is especially like you're saying, Chris, with the yeah, they have such a I don't know what you'd say. They have their 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 gravitas and their style and they're just not the sort of people that you would think are going to bust out the the chicken dance. <laughs> the chicken everybody. dance. And taking it rather seriously. They don't yeah. have yeah. arch expressions on their faces no. and they all know how to do it. Yeah. I was just thinking, I don't know these people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not with them. I'm just watching. A delightful delightful movie. I just I couldn't get enough to you know that um, the two mothers are sisters, those women. I and did. so Karina's mother 
and his mother. Those, those are two sisters, the Patak sisters. And if you look at them, you can kind of tell. But that mm. was uh, uh, something I didn't catch until I looked at the cast list. Oh. But oh. they are famous actresses who are related playing against each other like that. And so as they that's... come closer, that's actually sisters who are playing those characters. They are famous actresses who are related playing against each other like that. And so as they that's... come closer, that's actually sisters who are playing those characters. <laughs> I enjoyed those characters too. Actually, Karina's yeah. mom, that woman whose last name is Patak. Gosh, the names don't stick, but Patak, and then she has a married name. She's an yeah. amazing actress. I mean, talk about Beulah Bondi. She's the equivalent of that. She's not playing older, but all of the shades and colors that she managed. I don't want to grow up to be you. And the way a mother would feel that way. Yeah. She doesn't take it over the top. She feels the way a real person would feel. She understands, but she's hurt. I really liked that mom character. Yeah. And I'm, I'll bet to Indian people, that mom actress is very familiar and she's done all sorts of wonderful things. But for me, I just saw her do that one. And she stood out immediately as one of the best things in it to me. Yeah. I thought I agree. that moment that you mentioned, just to just to say what I liked about it is, yeah, she says, I don't want to grow up to be to be you. And the reaction is kind of that mixture of being hurt. And later that comes back in another line. But I like how she, at the first she says, you know, as if as if you could, like, how can you, you're not you're not even gonna, you, you can't do that. Like, you can't grow you can't, up to be me. You can't. <laughs> yeah. You can't be the equal. Right. Yeah. 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 That was that was honestly a big selling point for me on this movie was the realness of the relationships, especially with the parents. Like one thing I kind of liked and, and noticed, I don't know if this was I don't know if I'm smart for noticing this or if it's so obvious that I'm going to feel stupid for thinking I'm smart for noticing it. But the the fact that Karina and her mother Blossom spoke mostly English to each other, almost I, I think a lot of their dialogue was English, whereas uh, Sanjay's family spoke almost exclusively Indian to each other. There was a bit of peppering for each of them, but I thought it kind of sold that cultural divide where, he, you know, he was, he came from a Hindu family. She came from a Christian family. So theirs was a bit more Western and they spoke a bit more English and mm -hmm. it made for some fun switching from scene to scene. There were times where it, it made it really easy for me to, to acclimate to the family dynamic of each one where there was more English here and they would, I, I would, it would kind of help me, understand the context of each situation just listening to the dialogue and the different approaches they had wow that's i didn't think of that and there's more to it and hmm. that is a very smart observation yes. partly a christian thing but it's partly it's about gender there's a thing in language women tend to speak more formally and the relationship between hindi and english is that english is the language of the outside it's the cosmopolitan language where there's a word for you know computer things etc <laughs> yeah you would expect the women to use more English. And notice that her fiance doesn't use as much English. It's because he, he's, a, he's a man. Mm -hmm. That's partly, I'm going to use this in my classes because you're right. Sanjay <laughs> kind of lives in Hindi. She lives more in English. Yeah. And it's because of that gender split. And I'll, I doubt if any of them are thinking about it. But that's <laughs> something you see around the world. Thank you for noticing <laughs> that. I didn't, I didn't pick up on that. You're right. You're welcome. And thank you for helping me make sense of it better. That's right. <laughs> that context is amazing. That's really that it's is something fun. you're right. <laughs> it's something too where I wonder about the script and the improvisation because when you're figuring out how established English is because I wonder when they go through and they write the script, you know, do they write it out with all the switches or is that something that sort of naturally comes to the actors as they're giving across the essence of the line. Mm. And it feels a lot like the second. It feels like they would sort of there would be the gist of the line, you know, with maybe some powerpoints there that they need to hit and then 
they would just sort of switch in and out uh, as the as it feels natural to them. Yeah, yeah, they couldn't have. You don't imagine them writing no, it that way. No. That's right. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, it'd be nice to ask somebody about that. Um, yeah. it, I wonder if they write it all in Hindi. And then you're just expected to put in the English where you would or the other way around. You know, yeah, that, just I don't know. Is it organically or? Yeah. Just speaking again about the parent-child dynamics, this time specifically between Sanjay, Sanjay and his, uh, his parents. I loved – one thing I absolutely loved about this was the, the, uh, the existence of poverty was something that factored into the story several times, like when he stops the pickpocket and the pickpocket kind of has to explain himself a bit. And that, that was kind of a good way to sort of help paint this overall portrait of the socio – economic standing of people in this area but one thing i loved was just seeing his father sitting on the floor playing this piano and singing random songs every scene in the house we see his dad in the back playing this piano he reminded me a little bit a little bit of bark in the sense that he's just this sweet little old man and they just want to protect the guy and similarly there's a scene where sanjay ends up uh, sleeping with Rashi, his boss, to get his ho- to get a hold of the check that they need to get this house, and that ends up being this massively pivotal turning point in the story. And the next scene, narratively, the main purpose it serves is for him to confess to his friends and for them to give him advice. And you get that classic rom com, best friend back and forth. What should I do? You know, don't tell her, do tell her. But it's set against this backdrop of his father retiring as the announcer for this railway for the for the railroad. And it, it was it was a moment that to me felt like a much less tragic, much I wouldn't say sweeter because I, I thought Make Way was just the sweetest movie I've ever seen in addition to the harshest. But this moment where as he's retiring, they're throwing this little party for him and then they say make one last announcement. And he looks over and he's got a little piano next to the microphone. So he finally gets that audience he's wanted because he always wished he was a singer. So he gets to sing over the announcement and then just finish with a little railroad announcement. It's just this tender little soft यात्री कृपया ध्यान दें ट्रिपल टू जीरो नाइन डाउन दुरंतो एक्सप्रेस अब प्लेटफॉर्म नंबर आठ की बजाय प्लेटफॉर्म नंबर नौ से जाएगी धन्यवाद it's narratively speaking it's some would think it's excess some would think it's unnecessary but to me it it really helps do that that nice connection of heritage between him and his parents and between his parents and the world and yeah, it was one of those beautifully human moments that really grounded it for me and made me buy into it. And also their marriage in that, I'll just bet, you know their cutscenes in this, I'll just bet, because you could feel them almost doing it, that she, his wife, has sung along with him at home. Like at one point he's playing and she starts to kind of open her mouth and then they cut to something. I would like to see that cutscene where you just know that they show her singing along with him. There's your let me call you sweetheart scene, which yeah. gives you a sense of what our two leads are supposedly going to be on their way to. That was a tender moment between them that I thought was yeah. very sweet. She doesn't just sit there looking at him. She, they, they have done that together. Yeah, that was exactly. a nice... Exactly. You, you saying that makes me think that this would make a, 
this would make a good Broadway musical. It seems it's ripe for <laughs> this whole story. Yeah. yeah. With 14 numbers. Yeah. It was, yeah. Notice, though, in this also, though, talk about how it's a pairing with 1937. Notice how careful they are about sex. In that, for example, and this is something I was surprised that they had Sanjay sleeping with Rashi, but notice that they have to put it in that that didn't, unfortunate choice of words that that didn't happen that he was too drunk and it didn't actually happen yeah. they kind of slip that in as if it's 1937 only bad people actually do it if, yeah am i wrong on that, that the, no yeah you know i thought and this is exactly the the tangent that i was going to go into is it reminded me of something that would have hit in the 30s but maybe a few years earlier in america because it has it smacks to me of a pre-code film in the way that they're explicit about sex, like they mention it a lot. It comes up, they're constantly talking about it, you know, which, mm-hmm. yeah, which they wouldn't have done otherwise. But they, um, yeah, they're very careful about like what they're showing. And yet to make sure that we know that he didn't actually, you know, and even even the talks uh, that he keeps having with Rashi, that he's had, you know, even when they're having an affair, it keeps coming up that they haven't actually they slept together. They haven't done it. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, which and, is not the way it would be here. Exactly. Right. And the way that they talk about it is almost in that way that um, could come across as, as a bit juvenile or not very sophisticated in a way because, they, you know, they talk, oh, doing it, you know, they keep saying and things like that, like the way that you would talk about it when it was a really taboo subject, uh, you know, when you were a teenager. To, today, imagine Owen Wilson and Drew Barrymore. Yep. You know, there'd be no, what they would be having sex in the first scene, but that's clearly not <laughs> what's done in Bollywood. Yeah. 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 And they have, I don't know how indicative it is of the culture of India right now, but there's, you know, there's the scene where there's a couple sort of um, cuddling on the subway and they share that kiss that sort of uh, is showing them that they're falling in love and everything. Uh, and that's, you know, they talk about like, oh, look at that couple over there. They're cuddling. And so at one point, someone in the movie says there's a lack of space in the city for kissing because it's all about. And then it, it sort of reminds me of something that would have been implied in like a, a Lubitsch film where they're talking about kissing. But what they're really saying is what, that he doesn't have room to have to have intercourse <laughs> because he's at his parents place and she's there. And they're, it's almost like in a way that that's what they're searching for is a space where they can just consummate their love in the in a place that is their own without all the prying eyes in this massive city where every moment you're next to someone else. Mm-hmm. It's about grabbing that privacy. If it's a musical, the songs are all about kissing. Yeah. And if anybody says anything, then it's all about, if you want to steal a kiss, <laughs> and you're just supposed to know what else is going yes. on. Oh, Lubitsch pushes it a little further than that. In, in a sure. way, Lubitsch pushes it a little further than this Bollywood film mm-hmm. does. You know, Lubitsch, you, you know what he's talking about. And yeah, know, doors close. Whereas in this one, no door closes. They're not, they're never even that explicit. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. They kind of talk, they talk around it. They talk yeah. around it. I found yeah. that I hate to say I found that charming, but <laughs> I did. Because it was like being in the 30s, except it's you know in color and beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's a refreshing take just because it's something that you like you simply cannot get away with in Hollywood now. Like it, people wouldn't understand what was happening if you <laughs> were, if you had a story involving sex in this way, it would just be baffling. Yeah. I don't get it. Why won't they just say it? 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of, of old fashioned sensibilities, there was something I, I actually kind of want to dip into Bollywood a little more after watching this film, which it was a foreign enough concept to me that I never would have thought I would have said that. I would have thought, you know, that's their thing and they can, you know, that's I'm over here with my bargain bin garbage I get off Netflix and, and Marvel and stuff. But uh, something that I got the impression of, and we've it's come up a few times as we've been talking, is it it almost feels like a melting pot of film history of a lot of a lot of influences from around the world of different techniques and storytelling devices and things that have all kind of congealed into this into what I would consider maybe the Bollywood style. One of the things that made me think about this is there's an early scene, and it happens very few times, a few times, where Sanjay's father is playing the piano and. There's this, and this is actually the moment we're introduced to Karina. He he yeah. pushes on the key and you hear the, Hallelujah. and he sort of stops like as if he heard something weird and he looks around and he pushes it again. And then we cut to the scene of Karina in her wedding dress, getting ready for, you know, preparing for marriage and stuff. Standing like a religious painting with a yes. cross above her head. Yeah, exactly. It, it made me think of that Powell and Pressburger film. I've I've only had exposure to one Powell and Pressburger film so far, thanks to Bo and this podcast. I know and where I'm going. I know where I'm going. Yes, where uh, there's a there's a scene Wait, early. Which on. one is that? Oh, Ooh, tell Powell him, and Pressburger. That they're, they're my favorite. All of them pa- are perfect, but I don't know this. Yeah, one. Uh, it's it's a little picture they made in between their big Technicolor masterpieces. Um, uh, came out in '45. Takes place in Scotland. You have to see it. You, if you don't know it, you'd love it. It's, oh, I'm uh, seeing it tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I didn't know I hadn't seen any by then. Oh yes, yeah. I know <laughs> where amazing. I'm going. It's. Um, I can already promise that it's going to be one of your favorite movies. <laughs> it's. Uh, it's Roger Livesey and Wendy Hiller, um, and they. Yeah, it takes place in in the Hebrides, uh, on the Isle of Mull, and it's a wonderful black and white film. One of their one of their great original films beautiful but, beautiful movie yeah but chris you were talking about the oh uh, right stylized yeah, to, editing and yeah just to bring it home we get this um early and i know where i'm going there is a slight briefly frantic sequence of this sort of railway travel as the main character the girl wendy hiller's character is traveling towards her this destination she's going to and as she's at this this i think she's at the ticket booth she's, she's getting onto her train we see a guy next to her the camera pans over and it's a guy in a top hat camera closes up on the guy's top hat and then suddenly steam shoots out of it. Woo! And then it transitions to the, the, the little chimney top, the, I forgot what it's called. The, the exhaust port of this, of this train. I've seen enough star Wars exhaust port. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. A well-placed shot could demolish this train. There's a yeah. lot of that in, in um, love per square foot. It's very cleverly cut. Mm-hmm. Once again, I don't know if that's Bollywood cliche or whether it's, it's unique to this one, but I thoroughly enjoyed all of those cute little jump shots and juxtapositions yeah. in a movie that's technically too long. Yeah. But yeah. somehow it keeps you going. You know, you're never bored. Yeah. It is one where, yeah, it's such a, you know, it's following the three-act rom-com thing, but yet we have we have the first, you know, reveal, the conflict reveal, which would be happening at like 10 or 20 minutes left in the typical Hollywood film. And it happens with an hour left in this movie. Yeah. And then again, it happens with half hour left. So- there is a lot yeah. sort of tacked on, but it's this, I had the same thing, you know, as much as some scenes felt goofy or maybe didn't translate quite, but there was no, I couldn't really peg a lot of things that I thought, uh, that, you know, this, this whole section just doesn't need to be here. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could get away without it, but it's also I'd be hard fun. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Maybe one or two of the office scenes hmm. early on between Karina and that office mate. Maybe you don't need her. Yeah. But then yeah. again, there might be some continuity issues. Yeah. What would you cut? It's just, it's all so, it's all so organic. Yeah. yeah. They did a really nice job. It'd be a good TV show. I wonder if yeah. they do that yeah. there. Like, you know, you get, they get married and you, I guess that wouldn't be a very good show because then there's no, the, no tension. Yeah, what's, like, what's the yeah, what's the kind of Greek well, wedding became a TV show and yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that because as I was watching it, I was thinking this movie reminds me of a TV show. I don't know if either of you guys have seen it. Edgar Wright's TV show Spaced with Simon Pegg and uh no. Oh, no, that wonderful female comic. It's one of my favorite TV shows. It's only two seasons long, but the whole premise of Spaced is, you know, it's these these two offbeat characters need to get an apartment together and they're only renting two married couples. And so they pretend to be married and to live in this apartment together. So that was, Oh wow. Yeah. And that's a hilarious show, but right on it. It also, it ends very differently than this movie does as far as the dynamic between the two characters, but conceptually you could adapt it to a show you probably to it, but you probably couldn't continue it from the ending because it has very neat closure. You have to make them not already be in love. I yeah, guess. that's actually what threw me because I, I came from having seen Spaced a few times. I love that show. And coming from it into here, I was actually blown away by how quickly they hit it off in this film. Yeah, because the whole concept is, you know, we're, you know, we're faking that we're a married couple. But within a half hour, they look into each other's eyes and it's that oh, like the sparks raining down. Like this is the moment that they knew that they loved each other. And it's like there's an hour and a half left in this movie. Like. <laughs> Uh, and of course, you know, they ended up pulling drama from other sources, but yeah. yeah, it was, I guess in a way it was supposed to be about them moving in and gradually realize, but no, that's not what the movie was. Yeah, that's true. That, that's very yeah. true. You know, Rashi was acting for the first time that, that person, well, she's she a professional beauty. She's a model. Yeah. And this was her first acting job. And boy, was she convincing. I yeah. thought she did an excellent. I thought she was a seasoned comedian. Yeah. She, she was terrific. This was, this was her beginning. Yeah. <laughs> All kinds Very of interesting performance. That's terrific. Yeah, this movie was a it was a lot of fun. I I you know I I, I recommended it out of more of a morbid curiosity of how well will these two click together. But then seeing them side by side, it was that was a really fun two days of watching them back to back. I'll tell you that much. That was I actually I reviewed Make Way after I suggested this, and then it was a week later that I saw this. And yes, they were. A fine pairing, mm -hmm. without without a doubt. And I would never have taken a look at this. I mean, I thank you for suggesting because I would skip that love per square. What? Yeah. And yet it was a great, great two hours and thirteen minutes. I would recommend it to everybody. Not as much as Make Way, but yeah. but still, it is a wonderful, wonderful movie. Yeah, it's not it's not as much of a of a crippling window into the human condition, but it is a, <laughs> it is a fun watch. <laughs> <laughs> human condition <laughs> but it's 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 a fun watch with really good performances really yeah. solid and often touching performances it is it makes for a good chaser after make way if anything you know it's yeah you'll need it you're left feeling a bit devastated and yeah yeah <laughs> just don't Definitely. don't let it make you forget the lessons from make way but <laughs> from the yeah from the other one very mrs Maisel. i mean it's, yeah. it's it hit it hit me in that same spot mm-hmm yeah, just that feeling of I'm having fun right now. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I guess what I mean. What do you guys think as as far as who who would enjoy this movie? And it's, 
I, I don't know if you even want to get into nationality of, I'm sure, I'm sure Indians would love this movie more than Americans would in general, but I think on a personality level, who do you think would, would get the most out of a movie like this? It's, uh, I doubt if we're allowed to say this, but I think it would tilt female, <laughs> generally. Yeah, being a rom-com um, and whatnot. Yeah. Um, however, I think almost anybody would enjoy it, especially because it's kind of only about 55% in Hindi. They speak English a lot. And so you don't have to spend the whole time reading subtitles. Yeah. And um, so it's accessible in that way. It's beautiful. It's dramatic. Yeah. I Almost anybody I know would enjoy this, I mm. think. But it is what used to be called a chick flick, I think, ultimately. Yeah. But yeah, it's, yeah. It's very enjoyable. Yeah. I, I cruised over to Rotten Tomatoes to look at the reviews because I was interested on my Netflix. I'm always a little doubtful of what Netflix is telling me about itself. But on my <laughs> Netflix, it was showing this as like one of the top 10 like trending biggest films. And I was I was kind of surprised because I hadn't really heard of it until until this. And I thought, that's odd. I wonder if it's in because. General on Netflix? Yeah, it, it's, it keeps popping up on my like hmm. main thing. It's like one of the. So I was I was surprised by that. And then I go into Rotten Tomatoes, and it doesn't even – on Rotten Tomatoes, you can click on the top critic reviews, and it has zero, no top critic reviews. So no – you know, none of the wow. – I suppose that's probably the big the big Western news outlets. None of them are covering it. Um, but it's got decent ratings there. So I headed over to Letterboxd to see what the, you know, film buff, you know, lay, lay people are thinking. And scrolling through, uh, there was a lot of, you know, cute, fun, and then one one review <laughs> – that uh it just called it cute but basic and you know and uh, and that was yeah and that was yeah, sort of, that seemed to be the the general consensus was that uh it was they didn't feel it was cutting you know new ground i guess but i i don't know i mean i suppose it depends too on how much like we've been saying how much bollywood you've you've dived into because if your experience is you know the the 90s rom-com chick flicks with you know, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan and all that sort of thing, then this is going to be a spin on that because it's so vibrant and lively and there's, uh, you know, so much motion and color and all that happening. But, you know, maybe if uh, you've seen several Bollywood rom-coms, maybe this is par for the course. I don't know. Yeah, you can imagine that for, for many Indians, this is just a genre piece, a passing genre piece. But if you haven't seen a whole lot of these, you have to imagine being an Indian person who hasn't, I mean, everybody's seen so much American, but being somebody who hasn't seen that much American cinema, seeing when Harry loves Sally and they haven't seen anything else and what fun that would be. Or, well, that's so iconic. Say Sleepless yeah. in Seattle. Mm. To us, that was good, but, you know, we're not going to do a podcast on that. But imagine if you hadn't seen so many of those. Maybe yeah. that's what we're seeing with Love Per Square Foot, but delightful yeah. as sleepless in seattle would be if you were from some remote indigenous tiny place and you had seen that many american movies you would think it was titanic yeah so yeah, yeah. and sleepless in seattle by the way based on an affair to remember by leo mccary who did <laughs> who did make way for tomorrow hey. based on love affair also by leo mccary <laughs> you know that so. wasn't on purpose <laughs> there we go wow. <laughs> and we brought it all home <laughs> completely intended that was good. yeah 
Well, this has been fantastic. Dare I say, I've said it not every episode, but I have said it more than once. This <laughs> just about every episode. <laughs> this might be my this favorite episode. <laughs> my favorite one yet. Well, I thank you for asking me to do this because, as you know, all I ever get asked to do is talk about race in America or why people are using some new word. Nobody <laughs> asked me about you know film, which, as you can see, is one of my favorite things. So yeah, this. This was a, a delightful thing to be asked to do. Well, and this was we were very, yeah, we were thrilled to have you come on, and, and and it's been a lot of fun. It has. This has been an absolute delight. And of course, if you ever find yourself getting the itch to talk movies again, we're we're always starved for guests, and we <laughs> yeah. we've loved having you. So this would be a lot can of fun. We do, to do again. Can we do another one sometime? We can. That'd be fun. We Absolutely. we would, yeah. and yeah. it's supposed to be old and new, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. it it, it usually shakes out that way because all the streaming originals are are of course only a few years old at most mm -hmm. oh by the way is um i know where i'm going criterion or do i have to find it somewhere else it is, it is criterion criterion, it is criterion. Did it? Yeah. i'll order my own okay good and yeah you can, there you go if if you're starved to watch it and willing to settle for terrible quality i believe it's available to watch on youtube amazon yeah. too i think no i want i want it to look good so i'm gonna yeah. i'm gonna get a physical object it feels like a crime to watch Powell and pressburger on a on a 480 what they do screen. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. You want it to look good. Yeah. But you're going to love it for sure. Good. Terrific. Well, thanks a lot, John. We'll definitely, absolutely, we need to do this again soon because yeah. you are a joy to speak with. I, this was great, great opportunity. When, incidentally, um, does this probably go up? This one. This one's probably three weeks, Bo, would you say? Yeah, something like that. Something like that, because our schedule gets backed up pretty quickly because we only release an episode. Well, I guess we're like your podcast. We're only every two I weeks. I do every two episode. weeks. Yeah, exactly. So uh, that does stretch us out a bit. But yeah, I'm currently editing next week's as we speak, and then this is the one after that one. So yeah, okay, okay, yeah. good. Yeah. Let me know, and I'll tweet out. Perfect. Great, that would be helpful. Thank you. Perfect. Good. Terrific. Well, thank you, guys. Yeah. Thank you, John. This was, yeah, an absolute pleasure. Please have me again. All right. We will, will do. Thanks a lot, John. Have a great night. <laughs> <laughs>